Well, let's pray before we open God's Word together this morning. Father, we thank you for your timeless, your efficacious, your living Word. And we do pray that you would speak to it, speak to us by it as it is read and as it's preached this morning into the afternoon. And that you would receive the glory from us. Not to our name be the glory, but to your name, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 28. This is the holy and errant word of God. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn Him to death, and deliver Him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and He will be raised on the third day. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to Him with her sons, and kneeling before Him, she asked Him for something. And He said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father." And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. Well, the grass withers, and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. You probably, not probably, you don't need me to tell you that this is a momentous week. I think uh, some of us have been anticipating it for a couple of years, uh, and it's here. Now, you've heard a lot of opinions about it, no doubt, and I thought it might be helpful for you if I uh, shared my opinion uh, about it this morning. Uh, and where I stand, which side I want to win. Uh, I want, though, just as a, before I do so, I want to be clear, because I think this is helpful, is that Pastor Kevin and I are on separate sides of this equation. We desire something different as the outcome. Uh, and that... That I think is beneficial to understand. It was this week I 
thought would be a pretty hard week with him. He was on vacation, and so many of the conversations that I thought we would have, we didn't need to have uh, with him being on vacation this week. Uh, we do agree on this. We both agree that this is surely not the best that our country has to offer on either side, and yet it is what it is. Um, I hope you agree with me. I want the Chicago Bears to win this afternoon. He wants the New Orleans Saints to win this afternoon. He grew up in Louisiana. I grew up in Illinois. I'm a Bears fan. I, I want you to agree with me. Uh, I, I want your conscience, though, to be free. Uh, I, though, if I was to encourage you, I would say, look, we're Yankees up here, and there's a Yankee team involved, and there's a Southern team involved. Uh, there is... I think Chicago-style pizza is much better than Cajun and Creole. I, I, but I, I want you to, to uh, let your conscience decide here. Seriously, take a breath. Take a breath. We're Christians. And that means that we believe in the sovereign God. So that means that we have no need to get too high and no need to get too low based upon what happens or doesn't happen. In fact, if we get too high or we get too low based upon what happens or doesn't happen, then we are vesting too much glory in a person or too much glory in an office that a person fills that is not deserving. The Reformers... This is also Reformation Day weekend. The Reformers had a wonderful motto that became one of the cries of the Reformation, and it was sola dea gloria. To God be the glory alone. That'd be a good thing to have running through your mind and coursing through your blood this week. To God be the glory alone. Whatever happens, to God be the glory alone. We could say, I think, in a very real sense that all of the longings and all of the dreamings and all of the wishings and all of the hopings and all of the desirings that people have are really just shadows in their hearts of a desire to see the glory of the Lord. That's all that they are. Many people out there have it misplaced. They have it misplaced in an election or a vote or a politician or a celebrity or life or vacation or whatever it may be. But, but you know, you know that it's rightly placed in God. To God be the glory alone. What is the glory of God? It is His otherness. It is what separates Him from everything else. In that famous passage in Isaiah 6, when the angels and the archangels are before the throne of God, you hear them cry out in song before Him, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then in that refrain, they close it with, The whole earth is full of His glory. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be distinct. It is to be different. Different. 
And the angels say that when that holiness fills the earth, the earth is full of His glory. His glory, if I was to define it, is His infinite, intrinsic worth on display. His infinite, intrinsic worth on display. His beauty. His greatness. His goodness. His, his otherness. The Old Testament uses a word for glory. It's a word that means weighty. His, his weightiness. You can hear it in the Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word kavod. Kavod. His weightiness. All that exists, exists for His glory. So Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything is to be to His glory. In Isaiah 66, Isaiah will say, the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see My glory, says God. The great day that all Christians are looking forward to, we just sang it this morning, is when we get to see the glory of God in the face of Christ. In Romans 5, Paul will write, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. You and I are to view this world and everything in it by the doctrine of glory. All that exists, exists for the purpose of doxology. To give Him praise. That means that your life is not to be anthropocentric, that is, man-centered. Your life is not to be, if I can make up a term, me-centric. It's not to be about you. Your life is not to be political Centric. It's to be theocentric. Focused on God. For God, in God, through God, to God. When you have a right kingdom understanding, doxology becomes the chief controlling factor for everything you are and everything you do. So first... Let's recognize in this text that a lack of kingdom understanding results in the pursuit of self-glory. A lack of kingdom understanding results in the pursuit of self-glory, and that can be found in disciples of Christ. We turn the corner here in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew tells us that Jesus and the disciples, they are on their way to Jerusalem. They are entering Jerusalem and everything that will happen in Jerusalem as a result of their entering in. Jesus has been sharing with the disciples for months now what it is that they should expect to see happen when they go into Jerusalem. He has already told them, depending on how you count, at least three times, possibly four times, that when they go into Jerusalem, that the result of that will be that he will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be condemned, he will be beaten, he will be crucified and killed. He has told them that at least three times, if not four times. 
But the disciples, this isn't registered. Their kingdom understanding isn't put together. They, they aren't on the same page with Jesus. And when you don't have right kingdom understanding, you will have wrong expectations and you will have wrong aims. And we see that here in the text. The mother of John and James, the sons of Zebedee, approaches Jesus and she has a question for Jesus. Now, I think it's helpful to know that she doesn't just come as the mom of John and James. I, we can't be definitive about this, but I believe that she is also the aunt of Jesus. And, and I gather that from the end of three of the Gospels where we see these women that are at the foot of the cross of Jesus as he hangs there upon the cross. And here in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew will say that at the foot of the cross was Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Mark at in his gospel at the foot of the cross, he will mention the first two, but then when he gets to the last, he will mention Salome as the third. John, in his gospel, says that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and her sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, were all there at the foot of the cross. And thus, it's likely that the mother of Zebedee's sons and Salome are the same person, and John's account identifies that person as a sister of Jesus' mother. So therefore, I think it's likely, though we can't be absolutely certain, that when she comes to him, she doesn't just come as the mother of James and John, but she comes as Jesus' aunt. There's some familial authority here as she approaches him. It's clear, though, that this was not just her ruminations and her desires. Had rather, it was John and James that had encouraged their mom to approach Jesus with this request. You can see that because when Jesus responds, he responds to John and James. He asks the question of them. And when the disciples get indignant, the other disciples, about this question being asked, the other disciples get indignant, not with John and James' mother, they get indignant, angry with, with John and James. And it doesn't seem foreign to their personalities at this point either in their discipleship with Jesus. They were young men that were assertive. They were young men that were passionate You'll remember that John and James want to call down fire from heaven to burn up a city. And Jesus will call them the sons of thunder because of that. And so this is fitting with where they are at with Christ and where they are at in, in their discipleship. They want this position, this position of honor, this position of authority, this position of respect. Now, the request isn't all bad. There is faith in this request, and we want to acknowledge that. John and James understand, and they have faith, that as Jesus is entering Jerusalem, that He is ushering in His eschatological kingdom, that is, His end times kingdom. And they believe that it is coming. 
And so there is great faith here. They, they want one to sit on his right and one to sit on his left as this kingdom is ushered in. They want to reign and rule with him. They believe he's going to reign and rule. And so there is faith there. But there's also a lack of faith in that request. They lack understanding and they lack a right pursuit. And, and that is where many who are marked by passion have trouble seeing the flaw in their own faith. There's a lot of heat, but not a lot of light, as used to be said during the awakening. A lot of heat there, but not a lot of light. John and James, they want these things for themselves, honor, authority, power. So often that desire, isn't there lurking within our hearts where we ah, just want to be ahead above everybody else? I don't have to be way up there. Just put me ahead above everybody else. Just a little more honor, a little more authority. We want our interests, we want our opinions, we want our persons magnified and even glorified. D.A. Carson said about this request, he said, it is often ignorance that seeks leadership, power, and glory, and that's true. Jesus corrects them and he presses them, but he does so, you'll notice, with gentleness. He says, you do not know what you are asking. And then he probes with, are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And passion often is accompanied by a kind of overzealousness and overconfidence that people exhibit in the moment. And we see that with John and James here. There is this passion and they say, oh yes, we're able, Jesus. We're able. Zeal without knowledge. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that the flesh ever seeks to be glorified before it is crucified. And that's also true. And yet our Lord, He is still gentle with them. And I think that's very instructive. There are many who say incredibly silly things. Because of their zeal and passion and their immaturity in Christ. And exercising patience with our brothers and sisters when they do that, that goes a long ways. Think of all the just silly things, sinful things that I've said over the years. I think it, it, there aren't enough pages in the world to write them all down. There's some, though, that just, they, they, they percolate in my mind when I think about it, that just immediately rise to the top, and I wish, I mean, I would cut off my right arm to get those moments back. One of them is, I remember when Lee and I, we went down to, to Dallas to visit the seminary that, uh, that we were thinking about me attending and 25 years ago, and I remember visiting and there was a family that hosted us while we visited there and we were sitting in the family room with this family and the man was a seminary student and he, he that family became dear friends of ours when we eventually went to seminary there and I remember him asking me in the family room we were sitting there one night he said Jason he said 
What do you think it is that the Lord wants to do with you in ministry? It's a good question for someone thinking about seminary. And my reply was, I don't know what the Lord wants to do with me in ministry. I just know that He wants to do great things through me for the sake of the kingdom. I'd give anything to have that moment back. I heard uh, Derek Thomas say one time, and it resonated with me, and it often goes through my mind. He said, when I started the ministry, he said, I used to pray and hope God do great things through me for the sake of the kingdom. Then a couple of years go by, and you think and pray, oh, Lord, would you just do great things through me for the sake of the denomination that I belong to? A couple more years go by and you think, oh, Lord, would you just do great things through me in the, the local church that I serve? A couple more years go by and you get to the place where it's, Lord, just help me to finish the race. I just want to finish the race. That's it. Hubris and pride and zeal without knowledge, they often proclaim our immaturity in Christ. And even as we mature, we've only gone so far in Christ, we are never as mature, John prayed this morning, never as mature as we want to be or that we should be or that we would hope to be. And so that, that little pride, it comes percolating up every once in a while, and too often. These two brothers, they had faith. It was just immature. It wasn't refined as it would be. So Jesus just gently leads them. He gently instructs them. He remains patient with them. And truly thank God that he was. Because what was the result? James and John will become two of the greatest examples and leaders that the church has ever seen. Second, let us note that great kingdom service most often comes at great personal cost. Great kingdom service often comes at great personal cost. That shouldn't surprise us because great things come at great cost. You can see that in the world accumulating Great riches or a high position or great, uh, a great office or honor is often accompanied by great anxieties and great temptations and great envy. And in the kingdom of Christ, we see that principle even more magnified. So be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you pray for. Those who are greatly used by the Lord in His kingdom are most often those who face the greatest suffering for the sake of that kingdom. And I look back over church history. I love to read church history and read of the men and the women who have preceded us in the faith. And almost to a person, every single one that we would point at and we would say, wow, the Lord mightily used them in their day. Almost to a person. They suffer physical maladies. They 
are persecuted. They go through conflict that you wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy. They are accused of things that you think, how could anybody ever accuse them of that? They suffer through family problems. They suffer through loss and death and disease. Almost to a person. Some of our college and high school students this week decided that they wanted to do a an event. They called it Big Tent, Big God. And so we spent a couple of nights together where we sang together and we prayed together and we opened the scriptures together and preached together. And I preached to them those two evenings and I was telling them about revival one night and that it is the greatest prayer and greatest hope I have in this world besides the salvation of my own children is that I would see revival and that we would see God work in mighty ways. I hope you've been praying for that. That's one of the seven things that we're praying for on these cards. I hope that you pray for revival, but I also want you to understand what revival is and what it requires. Revival is not something different in kind than what we normally see. It is just different in degree. It is the same means that God uses. He uses the word preach and uses the prayers of His people. And He works the same way. The Spirit is poured out and it takes hearts of stone and turns them to hearts of flesh. It leads people in confession. It leads them in repentance. It leads them to faith. It's the same thing. It's just different in degree. It's the same work. It's just more of that work. It's the Spirit being poured out in a more demonstrative way. It is not just localized. It's all over. It's not just to a small group. It's to hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands. And people are moved in deeper ways. They are stirred more with faith. They are desirous to get rid of sin more. They are more moved to pray and more moved to sit under the word preach. But as I told them, and I'll tell you, there's a cost. There's a great cost in praying for revival. Because if revival comes, it's going to cost you. Because revival always starts with the people of God. It always starts in the church. And we will be convicted we will be convicted of the poverty of our faith. We will be convicted of sins that we have kept hidden or some that we don't even, aren't even aware of. We will be led to greater degrees of faith. We will be required to pick up our cross more daily. We will be required to sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. It always begins here. So be careful what you pray for. Great kingdom service most often comes at great personal cost. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? Jesus asked them. This cup which has a long history in the Scriptures. It speaks of suffering. It often speaks of God's wrath. Are you able to drink this? 
Jesus will use that same term referring to the cup in every gospel account of his wrestling in the Garden of Gethsemane. That when he goes to the cross, what he has just again spoken to the disciples about. That when he is upon that cross, that he will suffer and that he will incur the wrath of God. That he will drink that cup. And so he asks them yet again, will you drink that cup? Oh yes, Jesus. And Jesus lets them know that they will, in fact, drink of this cup. James will be one of the first martyrs of the Christian faith. John will be exiled to the island of Patmos because he is a preacher of the gospel and because of his witness for the sake of Christ. They will both suffer for the sake of the kingdom. And they will do so to the glory of God. That's kingdom service. That's what Jesus is making clear. This is what kingdom service is. This is having a right kingdom mindset. You, you want to be great in the kingdom? Then you serve. He makes it even stronger in verse 27 by using the term doulos or slave. You are to be a slave. Humility, not power. Humble love, not self-promotion. Service, not control, is the way of those who are great in the kingdom of God. For the glory of God makes demands upon us. Humility, not hubris. Great kingdom service most often comes at great personal cost. So here's my question for you. Do you want to offer great kingdom service? Is that your heart's desire to the glory of God? Are you willing to sacrifice for it to be the case? Third, let us recognize the example of Christ's great kingdom understanding and His great service. Let us recognize the example of Christ's great kingdom understanding and service. Jesus says to these two brothers when they ask about sitting on His right and sitting on His left, He says, this isn't, this isn't my prerogative. Jesus himself is a man who is under authority. He humbles himself in the service of his Father. That is right kingdom understanding, humbling ourselves underneath the Father for his glory. He says in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. He will say in John chapter 6, I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. He will pray in John 17, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He seeks the glory of the Father. This is his driving mindset. This is a kingdom mindset. And he sets his example before the disciples in this passage. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. There's a wonderful inference in that statement. He, 
He's claiming that he, in fact, had every right to demand service, and yet he serves instead of seeking to be served. He gives his life, he says, as a ransom for many. That, that is, there's, there's a purchase. Our deliverance by, by a price paid, it, it cost him. For Christ to deliver us, He exchanged Himself for us upon that tree. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, the Christian was bought with a price. And then Paul will say in Acts 20, as he's speaking to the elders of the church, he will say, these lambs that have been purchased by Christ's blood, bought with His blood, He gives His life as a ransom for those who are His. For many, he says. Notice he doesn't say all. He says for many. It's for those that are his. His sheep. It is with this true kingdom understanding. Where he's seeking the glory of God. That he willingly serves the church of God to the point of even death. I was thinking about Christ's glory this week. As I was thinking about this text and. And here is Christ who is the God-man, and as He walks on this earth, His, his glory is shrouded, it's, it's hidden, it's, it's concealed. You get an understanding of that. In John 17, He will pray this prayer as He's speaking to the Father. He will say, I glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. There, there, there was a glory that the Son of God as a second person of the triune Godhead had intrinsically from all of eternity past. But when He enters into this creation, when He becomes flesh and He is born of the womb of the Virgin Mary, as Philippians 2 says, He empties Himself by taking the form of a servant. He didn't grasp upon His deity, but He emptied Himself so that His glory was shrouded in His earthly life. Isaiah will say that He had no form or majesty that we should look upon Him. Men esteemed Him not. They, they didn't see what He was. It, was. it was veiled to them. But then you remember just a few months ago when we were in Matthew 17, there's a moment, isn't there? Where Jesus takes... John and James, these two sons of Zebedee, and Peter up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as they go up onto this mount, he meets there with Elijah and Moses. And as he meets with them, his, his entire body is transfigured. And his glory shines. And yet it's just a, it's just a glimpse of the glory of Christ and what He has had for all of the eternity that they see. But they see His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And yet, I would contend that the glory Christ shined forth on the Mount of Transfiguration was surpassed by the glory that shined forth on Mount Calvary. It didn't have the light show that you had on the Mount of Transfiguration. In fact, there was darkness over the land. 
but his glory shined all the brighter there. In that John 17 prayer, what we call the high priestly prayer that Jesus prays, he prays, I believe this, proleptically. That is, he, he prays this with the assumption that he is going to do this and this is going to occur. As he says in our text this morning that he will be crucified. In John 17, he prays this, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. That is, he understands that the crucifixion his dying upon the cross is the ultimate act of giving glory to His Father in heaven while He is here on earth. And so he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. And I believe he's praying this about His atoning work on the cross. That, Father, glorify Me as I am laid out on that cross. And as I suffer in humility to do Your will, glorify Me. That is, shine forth My glory throughout the world. May people see the glory of the cross so that You are glorified. Crucifixion is not somehow a to the glory of Christ, but it's at the, the very center of the glory of Christ as He seeks to glorify His Father. In fact, I'd argue there has never been a more glorious moment in all of the universe's history than that moment. Because He's humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross to do the will of His Father. That's a kingdom mindset. I think passers-by only saw a, a gory scene on that day. But the Father in heaven saw a glory scene. That's how much my Son loves me. That's how much He seeks to glorify me. That He would humble Himself in service to the divine will to save his brothers and sisters. Glory. And Christ, all of his life, you know, is an act of, of living for the glory of God. And yet, it hits a crescendo here. And what's fascinating is he sets it before you and I as an example. I'm the example, he's saying to the disciples. What does that call forth from us? This greatest act of humiliation and service and love for us. What doxology. I want to end just with highlighting why all things must be for his glory. It's helpful maybe to think like this as you try and have a kingdom understanding and mindset and live life as a doxology to Him. Probably, well, it is, besides the Bible, 
pains me to say it, Pilgrim's Progress is up there. But this, this is probably the book that has had the greatest impact on my life besides the Bible is a book that Jonathan Edwards wrote, uh, The End for Which God Created the World. And I remember reading that book for the first time, and it was like every circuit in my head just started buzzing. And every light bulb, I don't have a lot of light bulbs in my head, but I got a few, and they all started going off. That's true, right there. That's it. That's the guiding truth, right there. Jonathan Edwards uh, argues in the end for which God created the world that God's glory is the ultimate end of all things. That is, that God loves Himself. And Edwards' argument is God rightfully loves Himself. And he rightfully loves himself above everything else. Nothing else rivals it. He loves himself the most. Now, if you and I said we love ourselves the most, there's a problem there. Because it would be inordinate. It's undeserved. It's, it shouldn't be that way. But for God to love himself the most, that's the only thing he can do. Because there is nothing that is more beautiful. There's nothing that is more lovely. There is nothing that is more true. There is nothing that is more good. So if he is going to love that which is lovely, he must love himself. As if he's going to love that which is the most beautiful, he must love himself above all else. If he's going to love that which is the most good and the most true, then he must love himself above all else. And so, it is this, in fact, Edward says, his own infinite fullness that excited him to create the world. That is, God expresses himself as a manifestation of his delight in himself as he creates. So that his creation will reflect back to him his own glory. So that when he looks upon creation, he can see his own love, and he can see his own grace, and he can see his own knowledge, and he can see his own beauty reflected back to himself. Because it's a manifestation of himself. So Edwards wonderfully declares that God looks on the communication of himself and the emanation of his infinite glory to belong to the fullness and completeness of himself. That there's a perfection in him seeing himself reflected in creation. Not that there was an imperfection in God before that, but rather that God's glory is all the more manifest because of his creation. The church, for example, we'll read in the New Testament, is called the fullness of Christ. Well, wasn't Christ already full? Yes, but the, the church as his bride, as his blood-bought bride, now exemplifies that fullness all the more. And the divine fullness is communicated often in different terms, and not divine knowledge or virtue and holiness or happiness. And it means that all Knowledge is is knowledge of Him. That is, that 
you and I arrive at the highest form of knowledge in our minds when we reach knowledge of Him. That you and I arrive at the greatest form of love when we find love for Him. That you and I have observed the most beautiful thing possible when we arrive at reflecting upon His beauty. He is the beginning and He is the end of all things. And so all things are from Him and through Him and to Him, as Paul will say there in Romans 11. He is all in all. And thus, all God's desires and all God's pursuits originate and terminate in Himself. He seeks Himself as the highest and last end, but is not simply selfish. If you and I were to do this as created beings, self-interest may be set in opposition to the public good. But when God seeks His self-interest, it is always for the public good. As the Westminster Divines said in the answer to that shorter catechism question one, what is the chief end of man? Notice they put two things together. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. They're tied together. They're inseparably tied together. When you glory in God, you will find enjoyment in God. Truth is, when you glory in God, you will find your greatest happiness because there is nothing greater, nothing more glorious, nothing that can give you greater joy and happiness. In a brilliant doxology, Edward says this, he says, God communicates himself to the understanding of the creature in giving the knowledge of his glory, and to the will of the creature in giving him holiness consisting primarily in the love of God, and in giving the creature happiness, chiefly consisting in joy in God. When the creature knows, esteems, loves, rejoices in, and praises God, his glory is exhibited and acknowledged, and his fullness is received, and it's returned. It's received, and it's returned. So I think we can say that Jesus, in that very moment that He is on the cross, He is a man of sorrows. But He is also, in that very moment, the happiest man on the face of the earth. Why? Because He's in the very will of God. He has submitted Himself to God. He is living according to the will of God. He is giving glory to His God. And being there is where the blessed man is. It's there that there is joy and true happiness. He's the happiest man on the face of the earth as he is being crucified in one very real sense. There's nothing better for your soul. And there's nothing more pleasing to our God than you and I having a kingdom understanding 
and living in that humility and love to one another and in glory to our God. You won't find happiness anywhere else. It's the greatest place of happiness. It's a place of everlasting joy. And here's a kicker. This is what we'll be doing for all of eternity. We'll be giving glory to God and we'll be serving one another in love. You might get used to it now. Let's start now. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that our lives would be a living doxology to you. We would present our lives as a living sacrifice to you. That we would see that the greatest role we can play in this world, the greatest happiness we can enjoy in this world, the greatest peace we can experience in this world, happens as we seek to glorify you and serve one another in love. May this be our mind, may this be our heart, may this be the very breathing of our souls, and may you receive all the glory and the praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen.